All right, everybody, welcome to the Independent Streak Podcast. I am Tyrell Ventura. This is only on Jesse Ventura's Die First Then Quit Substack site. Uh, and today I'm joined by Sabrina Salvati, or Sabby Sabs. She goes by many a moniker. Uh, thank you for coming on today. You have an excellent YouTube channel and platform, uh, but tell us a little bit about like what, it, what you do. Thanks so much for having me on. Yes, so um, I'm actually a part of Revolutionary Blackout Network. We were a group of activists that decided to find a way to put our activism online. So a lot of us, we canvassed for Bernie Sanders or members of the squad, uh, donated to them. We heavily supported that Bernie Sanders movement. So that's where we came from. And we just noticed that when it came to uh, independent media, there wasn't really a voice for uh, the activists, those of us that were actually on the ground, like doing the groundwork. So we decided to actually create that voice. Uh, for me personally, I already had started my YouTube channel and I started off by interviewing progressive candidates. Uh, I think Marianne Williamson was one of the first people that came on. So I started with that. And then as I started to see how the squad was not pushing back on Democrat establishment, I started to find myself moving away from that movement. And then I kind of was just like, well, where do we go from here? And so as time went by, I realized that neither one of these parties is going to help us. Even the strategy of putting progressives through the Democratic Party was still not working. So what those of us at Revolutionary Blackout Network have realized is that you have to have that work on the outside. You can't just rely on electoral politics to get these policies passed and to get the things that we want. So we've been doing a lot of direct action and mutual aid, trying to help people in our communities on the local level and trying to get people to focus more on local politics instead of national politics. Because when it comes to Congress, they're really not really passing anything that doesn't have some type of corporate interest. So that's what we've come to realize. And we just saw so many people, I think, disappointed by Bernie Sanders' movement after he you know, chose to, you know, drop out of his campaign and told everybody to vote for Joe Biden in 2020. That was a very disappointing for a lot of us. And so we just wanted to find hope somewhere else and, and just thought like maybe we should focus more on third parties and maybe we should focus more on direct action and mutual aid. When, when did you first really start your your activism and your your fight to change the the, the political not only structure, but the, the political thought processes in this country, like what influenced you and, and when did you first kind of, you know, whether it's pick up a sign or make your voice heard? I started actually activism when I was in high school. I started volunteering. I did a lot of volunteer work for Habitat for Humanity, uh, different like organizations. Um, but in the political realm, I thought I was doing the right thing in college when I joined political organizations, but I was a Democrat, so they were Democrat organizations. And at that time, I didn't understand how money worked in politics, but it was definitely, it was Bernie Sanders who woke me up to that and made me realize that the corporate money is the problem. So I would say it was really him that made me combine the two. Was that his 2016 run or the, or the 2020 run? It was the 2016 run. Um, and that, that was another one where I thought, 
who's really going to vote for Hillary Clinton? And <laughs> to my surprise, like more people <laughs> wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton than Bernie Sanders. Uh, of course, the media had a hand in that as well. They didn't give Bernie Sanders as much airtime. They put his debate on at odd hours when people were not going to be paying attention. So that was intentional. So when Bernie announced that he was running again in 2020, I said, this time, I think he's really going to win. Uh, I didn't understand back then either just how much the DNC was actually going to make it so that Bernie Sanders would never win. And uh, so I think there are a lot of things that were at play there that those of us who were, you know, canvassing for these candidates like Bernie Sanders and AOC, we just didn't really understand the full scope of, of political, uh, the political arena in D.C. at that time. It's interesting because I see more and more people, especially young activists and especially people like my age, younger and even older, uh, now going to alternate forms of media and using whether it be social media or YouTube or, you know, independent media outlets or Substack. I mean, the list goes on and on. How powerful has that been in terms of giving a voice to views and politics and, and, and activists who are being shut out by that system in Washington you describe? I think it's been somewhat powerful. For example, it was independent media that introduced me to Bernie Sanders. So that's how I found out about his two races um, and found out the truth about what Bernie Sanders was trying to fight for instead of listening to mainstream media because they were just smearing Bernie Sanders and his policies. But I will say, I don't think the the independent media space is large enough. And I, I say that because coming out of the Bernie movement, it was very clear to me when I spoke to people who were coworkers or friends and family members, they were not aware who a lot of these independent media channels were. And I'm talking even a channel like the Young Turks, which has millions of subscribers. They had never heard of it. They had never heard of a majority report. They didn't know who Humanist Report were. And I, I think that really was eye-opening to me because that was when I realized we're not as big as we think we are and we still need to reach more people. And then there's also other things you have to deal with with YouTube. There's suppression of independent media now, more so than it was three or four years ago. So we're constantly fighting against that and fighting against censorship as well. But we really have to reach more people. And one of the things that we want to do at RBN, we eventually want to go on the road to reach those people because not everybody watches YouTube or Rockfin or Rumble. And so we want to meet people in person to tell them what's really going on politically. So I think YouTube started to realize that some of these independent media channels were getting more views than cable news at the time, particularly CNN. And they saw that as, as dangerous. They didn't want that to happen. So they have found ways to suppress independent media and to prop up corporate media on YouTube instead. I really like what you just said there, because I think that that's a lot of times what gets missed. You know, the, the idea that it's not just about sitting in front of the microphone at home behind your desk and, and, and you know, speaking your truth to them to as many people that will listen uh, on a digital platform, but hitting the road. Um, that is a really powerful and I think is going to be really beneficial to really spread the message, because at the end of the day, it's still the impact that has on an individual being able to meet somebody in person or, or, you know, go to an event or whatever it might be, whatever you guys have planned that as every politician or every person who's ever run for office will tell you it's the shoe leather that really gets your votes. 
you know, and so I think that's a really brilliant move that you guys are doing. And what's interesting is you're not the only uh, independent media folks I just heard talk about that. I think it's uh, Zach and Gavin with the Vanguard. Uh, we're also talking about going out on the road, too. So that's a really interesting dynamic. Could you kind of go a little bit more into that and, and, and really talk about like where that idea came from and and you know, not only what you hope to accomplish, but but how will do you believe that that will have a bigger impact? And will we see more people doing that in the future? For me, it came from just talking to people during uh, Bernie Sanders campaign when I started to talk to co-workers and when I started to talk to family members about politics in general and what was going on with both parties. That was when I realized that most people just don't understand just how corrupt uh, the system is and that they also had a false narrative about people like Bernie Sanders and AOC because they were only watching mainstream media. So that was actually how I reached people was just talking to them in person. And these were people like, they don't watch YouTube. They're, they're not paying attention to those types of things. So for me, that's where that idea came from. We really need to talk to people face to face, which is something that a lot of politicians used to do uh, more so back in the day. And so we, we've talked about that before over at RBN. We actually would like to have a college circuit where we hit up the colleges so we can reach the young people because these are the generations we really need to. I've tried really hard, I think, with older generations, not saying we can't talk to them as well. We can. But what I've noticed is that a lot of the policies that we're fighting for, they don't really need. Most of them don't need to cancel student loan debt. Most of them have Medicare, so they don't need Medicare for all. And these are things they've said to me themselves. Uh, when we did the marches for Medicare for all, there were multiple people told me, I appreciate you guys doing this, but I already have Medicare. So I think we need to reach the younger people because they're the future and they're the most that uh, are going to be impacted by climate effects that are coming their way. So they, they have a great appreciation for that. And I've also noticed having worked with the younger students, they are more likely to embrace socialism. And it's, it's just different from like my generation uh, and, and Gen X and, and going forward, they're more likely to to embrace those policies because they're the ones that are really going to be affected. So I think that's something we want to focus on doing like a college circuit and all of those kinds of things. I know we're trying to raise money for something like that to happen, but we also want to implement local chapters. So all of us live in different states. So we want to do what Rome at RBN does for Tour for the Poor nationally. We want to set up chapters in our own areas and do that on a consistent basis where we are giving people food and clothes and we're trying to help people with the material needs that they're not getting from their government. So the goal is that our viewers, and some of them have already started doing this, will see us doing those things on a local level as well. And they'll want to do the same thing in their communities. That's the goal that we have so far. But I think, yes, in reference to, is that the future? I think you're going to have to see more people go out and talk to the people. Uh, Jordan Sheraton at Status Quo has been doing this for a long time. So he always has a feel of really what's going on on the ground and not what people are telling you uh, on mainstream media because he's actually talking to those people. Um, but I think this is really where you're going to have to go because I think the days of, since Bernie suspended his campaign in 2020, the days of people just sitting behind uh, you know, in front of a camera at their desk and just talking to the screen, like people want to do something. And we've had several audience members reach out to us and tell us they want to do something. They don't want to just sit and, and wait and hope that something happens. So we have to take that action. So I think 
for people who are looking to get into independent media today, I think this is something you're going to eventually have to do. And you don't have to have like fancy equipment. Like when I've gone on the ground, I I've used my cell phone. Um, I've used a little camera before and just covering things that are going on locally and talking to those people. I've been focusing uh, heavily here on the housing issue that's been happening in the Boston area where people are just being pushed out. Uh, the city is letting buildings just fall apart. This is happening across the country. And I know Jordan Sheraton's talking about this right now as well. So I think that you really have to go out there and talk to the people because otherwise, like, they'll think that you, you don't care, you don't know, and they'll see that you're not involved. It almost sounds in a way, it's almost like a hybrid of something that we've lost in our, our media. I mean, maybe our local media still does it a little bit, but it's rare, especially with newspapers and things like that, that you don't see a lot of investigative journalism anymore. Not in the scope that we would we would hope it to be, especially independent investigative journalism, where it's you know it's it's uh, you know they're not worried about pissing off a sponsor, or they're not worried about oh we're going to lose ad buys from this big pharma company and things like that, or and that and that filters down from like the national media down to local media and and all of that. So it's really interesting to see to hear you mention that because I think that there's a huge gap there's a huge vacuum there that's waiting to be filled by really bright good young people that can start going out and doing those investigations or at least shining light on the problems that are affecting us on a day-to-day -day basis on a local level because uh if there's one thing that i've learned over the years is that the, the biggest political changes that you can make that will impact you directly right away is on a local level you know, it's very easy to get seduced by the American idol of, of you know, national federal politics and who, who's running for president or who's running for this high end seat in Congress. But what we forget is that the biggest change that we can make starts locally that will affect us right away where we can physically and visually, you know, we can feel that change happen uh, immediately. And I think we get caught up in this kind of... <laughs> Uh, the Reaganomics of politics to a certain degree where we think that, okay, well, if we only pay attention to the federal level, that'll eventually trickle down to the rest of us, uh, whether that's monetarily or, or through uh, social issues or things like that. Um, so I, I applaud you for doing that. And I applaud you for kind of, and, and Jordan and other people out there who are doing this and, and kind of starting that trend, because I think that there is a gap that needs to be filled by having people on the ground reporting and talking to, to, to people, uh, locally, and then who knows what you'll uncover. You know, I mean, some of the biggest stories of our time, they start very, very small. And then that little bit of that little, that little spark can suddenly overtake a nation. And, and, and change people's viewpoints on things. I wanted to ask you, what, what do you feel are the biggest, um, you mentioned housing, you mentioned Medicare for all, student debt. You know, those are the biggest issues, I think, by far facing uh, climate change, obviously, um, facing us today. And you mentioned that gap, you know, between the older generations and our generation uh, and, and younger. How do, how do we tackle that beyond just waiting <laughs> Beyond just waiting for the boomers to die off. I think we have to engage in conversations with them. I think that's, and sometimes it can be rather frustrating because they don't have the same experience that we did. Uh, I finally got my parents to come around to understanding this as well, that like they didn't have to go to college. They have no student loan debt and they were able to raise a family uh, pretty much for a long time off of one income. Uh, they didn't have to have both uh you know, both parties working. Uh, when my mom had me, 
she stayed home with me until I went to kindergarten. So they didn't have to pay for daycare. Uh, things are very different now. And so what I tend to do is to try to show them some type of data and not just tell them about our experience. Uh, recently, there was a, a new report that came out about the cost of living in the United States. And I think that's a good report to show to people because it shows you, you select your state and it shows you what you really need to make just to afford a one bedroom apartment. And most of the states that I've seen so far, that $15 minimum wage push is not enough for most of them. And so it's uh, unless you're looking at a territory like Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, it's enough, but in the States it's not. And I think showing them those numbers is really where I think you're going to reach them because they really don't have the experience. They're living in a different time where economically you really, you really did not have to go to college. And now it's like you, if you even just want to make a basic income to really just to try to get by, you really need some type of college, whether it's community college, a trade school, or four-year university, you need something. And it didn't used to be that way. So I think we have to have these conversations with them. One of the things I would say that was really good about people who did canvas for Bernie Sanders campaign, Nick from RBN, he was actually talking to people at the barbershop, older people there, older people at churches in South Carolina, explaining to them how these policies would work, explaining to them how the politicians that you've had have neglected the people. Uh, and you can explain it to them in a way that corporate media is not going to. And so what we found is that when it came to the actual issues, most people agreed with the issues, whether they were Democrat or Republican. But because of the propaganda from mainstream media, they don't vote that way. And this is why we had those exit polls where you'll see the majority of people supported Medicare for all, but they didn't vote for Bernie Sanders. They were voting for Joe Biden, at least in South Carolina. That's why, because they believe the propaganda that Bernie Sanders couldn't beat Trump. And so, you know, it's 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 still a struggle because we still have to find a way to fight against corporate media. And that is not easy to do, although they are losing ratings. That's still the number one place where people go to when they want to hear about the news. So we have to find a way to switch that. And that's why I say we really have to get the younger generation because they're more likely to embrace Internet news and news on YouTube. Without a doubt, without a doubt. You know, you mentioned that you you definitely align, you know, socialist in, in terms of your political viewpoints. What do you think is the biggest misconception about socialism uh, or, or even going further, like Marxism, things like that? What do you think is like the biggest, uh, you know, propaganda being put out that's completely untrue about that political ideology? Hmm. I would say that we're trying to turn America into Cuba and Venezuela and that we don't want people to have jobs. And that's actually not how it works. I think people get that narrative from MSM. And when you look at something like socialism, the difference would be it's not that you're not having a job. It's not that you're not working, but you would own the means of production. You would have ownership in that. And I'll give an example that I had recently when I worked at MIT. There's a document that you have to sign. All employees have to sign this, which basically says if you create or develop something while you're at MIT, MIT owns the property of it. You don't own it. So that's that's a perfect example. We don't own our work unless we're like entrepreneurs. We don't own it. So you do all this work for these companies. And what do they do? Like they exploit your labor. 
They pay you the bare minimum that they can get away with. You don't really get anything in return. Uh, when people talk about health care and they say, well, Medicare for all is going to cost more and it's going to take away your health care. That doesn't make any sense. The numbers actually show that Medicare for all is actually cheaper. So we would save money if we had Medicare for all. And I would argue that the insurance industry is the reason why so many people are dying. The reason why so many people are not living as long as they used to, because the health insurance companies just exploit the people. Big pharma is a huge part of this problem. Uh, we have high prescription drug prices. And if your insurance isn't tied to your job, then it's like you can't leave your job because you need the health insurance. And then if your health insurance premiums go up with your employer, there's nothing you can do about that. So you may get a raise, but your health insurance premiums are going up. So you're not really getting a raise. And that's the thing we want people to understand. But and in reference to Cuba and Venezuela, that's not true. And I, I wish people would stop using that talking point. <laughs> like it's just it's a bad example. Um, I think that what people have to understand when you look at a country like Venezuela, why is Venezuela that way? Because the United States government has intervened, they gave them the arms, and the people rose up with the arms. So that's why they're in the state that they're in. If you look at a lot of the countries that have these types of conflicts, somewhere down the line, the United States government was involved. And I think that's important for people to understand. But, but yeah, it's hard when you have like Fox News and CNN saying that socialism is like this big, scary boogeyman. And so people on the right, and people who are liberals are against it because you have both sides of the media saying bad things about socialism. So I would actually recommend that people look up organization like Socialist Alternative. Shama Sawant is a part of that organization. Uh, she's a great example. They do great work on the ground and the candidates come from the movement and the candidates are selected by the organization. So it's not someone who just wants to be a politician. That's not how it works. So I think if people actually read more about Marx, how it works, I think people would understand it better. I think so, too. And, and plus, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because we already have a lot of institutions that are, are, that are based on, on socialism to begin with, from, from, from the things that have been held over from what FDR started with the New Deal to I mean, when you talk about Medicare in general, well, that's, that's socialism to a certain degree. You know, it, it, it's been corrupted over the years. Social Security was socialism before it became corrupted. The U.S. military, if you really look at it, is essentially a socialist organization. <laughs> you know, uh, when, when you really kind of step back and look and say, oh, well, these people who are being provided for, they provide a service, but all of their needs are hopefully met. Uh, we're, again, not following up on that when it comes to veterans issues and things like that. But it's already in the fabric of this country. It's not some alien, horrible thing uh, that exists in places that, that, that we're supposed to, we're, we're told to hate. You have done uh, some really incredible interviews on your show. Uh, how do you go about preparing to do your show? Uh, and, and how do you go about getting these, these great interviews? For a lot of people who are starting out, they, you know, that's, one of those, that's one of the hardest things to do as a, as a political commentator, as a journalist, is to be able to, to prep, do a good show, talk about the issues, but also uh, secure some really fantastic interviews. How do you go about that? I think I was a little bit fortunate because I did major in broadcast journalism and English in undergrad. 
So I had a little bit of experience interviewing people. I also took broadcasting classes when I was in high school. And that was one of the first things my teacher made us do, go out and interview someone at the school. I'm like, just do it. Like She's like, yeah, now, like, just do it just on the spot. So we had to learn like how to just interview someone on the spot. And then later on, we learned how to do things in the studio. So I was lucky that I had that background. But the other thing I think in reference to interviewing people, you have to prepare for the worst. And I say, I say this because I, I really, um, I like to watch the people that I'm going to interview. I like to watch previous interviews that they've had first. So I can see how they answer questions and I can see if they push back and how they push back. That being said, sometimes you can do all of that and they can come onto your show and it could be different, right? So you have to prepare for the worst. One of the things I tell people is don't write down all of your interview questions. I used to do that a long time ago. And sometimes the interview does not go in that direction. And then you're kind of like, where, where do I go from here? I'm not going to get to answer the, ask all the questions. So what I just do is I just jot down a list of topics. I don't think about how I'm going to ask the question, what I'm going to say. I just jot down the topics and then I just kind of go with the flow of the interview and the topics don't always end up going in order either. And this is why I tell people prepare for the worst. Um, I also tend to have a backup plan. So sometimes in the past, there have been times where people would come on for an interview and all of a sudden something's not working, whether it's the audio or the camera. This has happened to me multiple times. So I always have a backup in the event. Someone is not working out well with StreamYard. I have a Zoom that they can just join the Zoom. And if need be, we can just record it um, and not do it live as well. Uh, so I think first and foremost, prepare for the worst. Make sure that you watch previous interviews that they have done before. I think that is really important. Some people may take a little bit longer to answer a question than others. So if that's the case, you don't want to have like 10 topics that you want to talk to them about. Five may be good for them for an hour interview. Uh, so I think that's very important. And then also you just have to make sure that make sure that you you I try to interview in a conversational tone. Uh, meaning that I'm going to ask the questions, but I don't want it to come across like it's mainstream media. Uh, I don't like that. So I try to be, um, try to have a conversational tone when I do the interviews. But at the same time, I think it's important that you have to be willing to push back. And I say that meaning that that doesn't mean that you attack them. Because I've seen this happen before where people have done interviews and they attack the person. I'm like, oh, well, that's not really the way to go about it. So you have to learn how to push back without attacking someone. And that wasn't something that came easily. That took time, took time for me to learn how to do that. In reference to uh, getting the interviews, it wasn't easy in the beginning. I'll be honest. If you don't know people uh, in the space, if you don't have connections, it'll be very difficult for you to get certain people just because some people have no contact information at all, not listed on their social media or their website. So I went through that like in the beginning. Um, so it's, it's important that you, you build or try to build relationships with people in this space. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean become friends with someone just so they can give you a connection to somebody else. Not like that, but you will see that in order to reach certain people, you may have to go through someone else. Uh, some people refer to this as access journalism. 
Um, but those things do happen. So be prepared for that. And then sometimes you just get lucky. Uh, Marianne Williamson at the time, she was one of the first people that came on. She actually had her contact information posted on her uh, Facebook page. So I just took a chance and sent an email and she said, yes. So sometimes you, you do just get lucky. Um, but I would say if you're trying to get someone that's especially a big guest, you may have to ask someone else to make an introduction for you. And I've had that happen a couple of times too, but that's where the relationships come in. That's why it's important that you build relationships with people in this space as well. I think for anybody out there who's trying to get in this game, you know, we far too often, we've been conditioned for a long time now. Uh, Matt Taibbi wrote about it in his book, uh, Hate Inc. You know, we've been conditioned for a long time now to believe that, all interviews should look like, you know, cable news where it's two opposing people yelling at each other for, for five, 10 minutes, uh, each one basically arguing. And then that's it, because I think they've kind of really adopted that ESPN model of uh, how to talk politics, which has been truly devastating to this country. And I think when you look around and you see the tribalism that we've that we've are, are in right now, where both sides hate each other vehemently, I think part of that hatred comes from the fact that we've been conditioned to believe that we are constantly, if we're talking politics, it's supposed to be a fight. When really, and, and, and tell me what you feel about this, is, isn't the idea of, of, of talking about political viewpoints ultimately, sh it, it, isn't the real idea behind it supposed to be a discourse, it's supposed to be a teaching, uh, it's supposed to be trying to let someone know your views, hear their views, and then have a back and forth to hopefully either find a proper uh, uh, agreement or or change an opinion. Uh, and you just don't, you just can't get that through just battling people and yelling at people constantly. That's true. No, it's 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 a hundred percent. I think that it's also important to interview people that you may not necessarily agree with. Now, some people don't like that I do this. Uh, when I interviewed Rokana, some people were like, why do you have him on? He's a traitor and <laughs> so much like pushback. But what I tell my audience is like, no, you need to hear how the other side thinks. You need to know what they're saying and how they feel. And you need to be willing to have those discussions with people, even if you disagree with them. Because if I just bring on people that I agree with all the time, that's boring. Like, I'm sorry. And that's that's an echo chamber. But we need to hear how the other side is thinking what they're saying. So I think that, yes, have those conversations. Don't attack them, uh, but push back on them when you need to. And I think it also helps if it's your first time interviewing that person. It helps if you tell them what you want to talk to them about. And I say that because there have been times where guests have gone on to shows and they didn't know what the, the discussion was going to be about. And they were kind of bombarded. And I think that's why, like, some people may have this rule that uh, I only do interviews with people that I know, or I have to be introduced to this person because they don't want to get attacked. Like, they don't know what they're getting themselves into. So it helps if you tell them, like, what you want to discuss, but also let them know what is the show about? What are you about? I think that's important. So if someone is, I haven't had this happen yet, or actually I had one conservative uh, came on my show, but he's a conservative in Canada. Uh, but especially if you're going to interview someone, you know, I'm a Marxist. If I want to interview someone that's conservative, I think it's only fair that they know that I'm not, 
So, so they Without know what doubt. they're getting yourself yeah. into. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah. And plus it, it, it creates, it, it, especially as you said, when you come at it from a, I'm going to push back, I'm going to stand for what I believe in at the same time, I'm going to keep it civil. You never know when one of your ideas may take root in that person you're talking to. I mean, to me, that's one of the other biggest, most important things about talking to people from the other side of your political viewpoints is that you never know when suddenly, you know, you don't know if that conversation that you had with Ro Connor, where you brilliantly pushed back against one of his viewpoints, that could take root and suddenly that could change his mind. And, you know, because we have to always remember, I think that the, the other side is still human beings. They're still, they're just like us. They might not believe in the things that we believe in and they can be very horrible uh, people because of that. But at the base level, they're still a human being and you never know when you can suddenly change someone's mind. And, and we've seen good examples of that. Um, who do you who do you look to right now in the political spectrum, uh, whether it be activists or actually people who have who hold office or, or people in independent media? Who who do you look to and say, wow, that that person's really on it. That person's got you can tell their heart is in what they're saying and they're truthful about who they are. I would say in the political space right now, I, I look towards uh, people like Shama Sawant. I think she is she's talking the talk and she's walking the walk. Uh, she is there on the ground with people in Seattle. Uh, she's a fighter. Uh, she fought against Amazon. She fought for the fight for 15. Uh, she never left that movement. Even after she won, uh, when she had the recall, she was still there fighting against them. And I think the difference with her is that she doesn't make it about her. She makes it about the organization and the activist group that she's a part of. And I would like to see more of that. I wish we had a thousand Shama Sawants that doesn't make it about them. So politically, I look towards someone like her. In independent media, I would say, you know, this space is, is changing a lot. Um, I've seen some of the people I used to watch a couple of years ago. I'm not as into anymore because I feel like they're not moving with with the times. Like if you're still constantly defending the squad, if you're trying to make excuses for Joe Biden, I don't I, I can't watch that. I just I just I really can't. Um, but I would I would say it's the smaller channels, to be honest. Uh, I really look towards like people like Hardlands Media. They do great work. Those guys are awesome. Um, and they also talk about uh, Chicago politics. So I like when people do like the local coverage as well. Um, I would also say uh, MCSE Network, which they are definitely underrated. They don't get as much attention as they deserve. I think they have actually covered these protests and they've covered elections in Colombia and um, in, in Peru. They went there on the ground. So they've done a lot of reporting that just doesn't get support or doesn't get coverage, right? Um, I am wary of some of the larger ones that I feel are slowly becoming mainstream media. Uh, I think The Hill Rising, for a long time, I didn't realize it was corporate. And then later on, I realized it was. I think that after Crystal and Sauger uh, left that show, it just went downhill. And I think that them adding Kim Iverson really got people to tune in again. Some of us that turned away and then now she's gone. So I think they are starting to sound to me, they sound more and more like MSNBC, uh, not the same as, as they used to it. Crystal and Saga at least used to push back more. I felt 
Um, so I, I'm worry, I'm wary of those, those types of things that are going on, but I would say like content wise, I would, I would actually tell people to focus more so on the smaller channels because we're the ones that are usually, you know, Vanguard, obviously we live stream. <laughs> we don't, we don't do, uh, these recorded videos and upload, uh, that used to be more popular a couple years ago. We don't do that. Like we go live. So our audience members can say anything in the chat. We may or may not like it. We really put ourselves out there and we engage with our audience more. And I think that that's kind of where this space is going. And I think the days of people just making like the short video clips and uploading them and not having that engagement with their audience, I think that's starting to go away. That's a really big thing is the engagement with the audience. You know, how do you, how do you handle that? Uh, you know, cause I, it, it you know, the rule of thumb is always like, don't ever read the YouTube comments, <laughs> you, know, you know, or at least that was the rule of thumb for a long time because YouTube comments will turn into the wild west real quick and, and, and you will have all of your hopes and dreams smashed by a few bad comments. <laughs> but how do you engage with the audience? And, 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 you know, and obviously you're not the type of person I, I've never got this from you and watching what you do. You don't chase clicks and things like that, but that still can be something that, that can be very sexy for people and, and, and that temptation to just chase clicks or to only follow where the audience takes you. How do you kind of balance that by not only delivering what's important for your audience to hear, but then not falling into that trap of letting your audience then become your echo chamber? It's tricky. Um, I would say you don't want to focus 100% of your time on the clickbait you know, items. And what I mean by that is talking about other podcasters that works very well for YouTube's algorithm, not saying that you can't do that, but that should be a hundred percent of what you do. I think you need to find a balance there. Uh, so I like to talk about housing issues. I'll throw in financial issues as well. And then maybe I'll have like three stories that I cover that night two of them, one may be about housing. The other one may be about a bill that didn't pass. And then maybe that other story might be about, this is what TYT is saying about this. I think it's good to find a, a balance, but I also say like, it's, it's tricky because, you know, sometimes the audience can turn on you. Like when you're live, um, I had interview with uh, Nick Brana back in April about allegations that were against him with movement for people's party. Uh, recently, or actually like a month or so ago, uh, the accuser came onto my show to tell her side of the story. Those interviews for me were very stressful and not because of the people that came on, but because of the audience reaction. Some people were mad that I brought Nick Brana on and some people were mad that I pushed back on him. Some people were mad I didn't, or some people were, were not, um, some people were mad I pushed back on him and some people were not. And then same thing, when I brought the accuser on, some people were mad that I even brought her on. And some people were mad that, you know, I gave her a voice as well. I tried to give people both sides. And, and that's the thing. This doesn't mean I'm on this person's side or this person's side. But when you have those types of allegations, you need to hear from both parties. So I felt like I'm going to do this the fair way. Did everybody like that? No. Some people was just like, I, I can't believe you brought her on. I can't believe you brought him on. So those interviews were stressful. Um, but you have to be careful when it comes to the audience. You do want to hear them out, 
but you don't want it to get to the point where every single criticism that they say about your show, you're changing something every time, because then it's not you anymore. Then you're getting further away from what you set out to do. So you're always going to get criticism, but if you, if you take it in and try to think, okay, which one of these issues is something that really does probably need to be changed and which are these issues that is just being nitpicky. I think that's important to note, but when you do those live shows and people come into the chat, you have to be just wary of the fact that not everyone that's coming into that chat is coming in to say something that's positive. So you are going to have some trolls as we like to call them. Oh yes. Um, I recommend just ignoring them. If things get out of hand, like we have mods like in the chat that can handle that, but you just, you have to make sure that you stay true to yourself and you don't get away from the message that you are trying to deliver. So don't let the audience control your show, but you should also be, be able to take in some of that criticism. Looking forward, where, where do you see yourself and, and what you're trying to accomplish, whether it be with your, with your show, uh, or with your activism, they're basically very intertwined, but, but where, where do you see yourself going? Let's say 10 years from now, like what, if you were able to achieve what you have in motion now, where do you want to be in 10 years? Oh, wow. I would like to make this show, I would say 50%, uh, on the ground and 50% here, like in front of the camera in my house, because I really want to go on the ground more. Um, it was hard in the beginning because I just didn't have a lot of time to do that, but that's what I wanted to be like half and half, half on the ground and half like in my house in front of the camera. So that's, that's a goal that I have. Cause I really do want people to hear more from people in the community, being able to travel to some of these places where these, these things are happening. I mean, people, the tent communities are popping up everywhere. Uh, this is, this problem is increasing across the United States. It's not just here in Boston, it's everywhere now. So being able to travel and show people those types of things, but also at the same time, trying to find ways to help. Uh, I want to do more for tour for the poor, giving people things that they need, like clothes and food, but also I would really like to tackle the housing situation. And that would probably be the toughest of all, um, the city has a handle on things like that. They make it really tough for you to even talk to them about these issues. So one of the things that I have done is just shown up at events that I knew the mayor was going to be at and ask her on camera. So now it's on camera, it's on video. You can't come back and say, you didn't say that, that you weren't going to implement more affordable housing. So that's kind of how I do it, um, because when I've tried to get these meetings with them before, it just does not, you just get run around in circles. So hopefully that's, that's where I would like to be. I, I really want more people locally to start trying to help out as well, helping people in their community. And I think we can really build something great. We are in, I think what a lot of people, and I don't think I'm out of line for saying this, I think we are in some pretty bleak times right now. You know, with this country's facing a lot of, of major devastation, like you mentioned with housing in the tent cities and climate change. And, you know, we everybody knows what the problems are. Do you have hope? You know, that's that's a dangerous word sometimes when times are, are tough right now. But do you have hope? Do you see change on the horizon? I think I see it if the younger people become more involved. Um, I would say what I saw after the, the Parkland shooting the way all of those young people just got together and got buses and went to DC. And we need more of that. 
we, we need more people to come out in large numbers the same way they did after the George Floyd um, during those protests. We need more people to come out in numbers. And I think it's really going to be the younger generation that's really going to drive that change because they're on social media a lot. They're very tech savvy. They know how to build communities online. I've, I've seen former students of mine do this like it's nothing to them. So I think I really would like to see that happen. And I think that's where we're going to get that change. I think on the electoral side, somebody is really going to have to jump in on a national level and shake things up. And I think it's going to have to be someone that has a big name. And I, I threw this out to Chris Hedges as well. I said, would you think you would run as a third party candidate? Um, he's not really feeling it, but <laughs> and I, I understand, but he's not feeling it. But um, I, I told him like someone like you or someone like Cornell West, like you're well known and you have a greater chance to just, even if you don't win, to really shake the system up. So I would like to see that happen in 2024. Somebody come forward and just wake people up. I think you're going to need both of those things. You're going to need that on the electoral side and you're going to need people to do more direct action in mass uh, numbers there on the ground as well. Boy, man, just I, I, you got my you got my like my mojo going. Just dreaming of a of a Cornell West Chris Hedges ticket, like oh my <laughs> god, like that be you know that would be incredible. I would love to see that, uh, you know, moving forward. Well, Sabby, I got to say thank you so much for joining us today and and educating our audience and 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 giving giving your truths to uh, to everyone here at, at Die First Then Quit. It's it's truly an honor to talk to you. Keep up the great work out there. And and where can people find you? Where they, can they check you out? Yes, you can find me on YouTube. My show is Sabby Sabs, and you can also find me at Revolutionary Blackout Network. Follow me on Twitter, Sabby Sabs Two, the number two. Excellent stuff. Definitely go out and do that. It's it's so rare and refreshing to have voices like yours out here in the wilderness that is U.S. politics and activism today. And 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 much love to you and your family and all of your friends out there on the East Coast. Thank you so much today. Thank you.